Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Dr. Henry Zhao, who is a stroke neurologist, as well as the operational clinical lead for the uh, Melbourne Mobile Stroke Unit. Hi, Henry. Hi. Hi, John. Um, thanks, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us today. So the topic of discussion today is about pre-hospital stroke, and in particular, uh, with regards to your experience uh, with the Melbourne Mobile Stroke Unit. Perhaps for listeners who are less familiar with uh, mobile stroke units, are you able to just give us a, a little bit of background about mobile stroke units and in particular the Melbourne mobile stroke unit that you've had uh, a role in helping to organize? Yeah, so mobile stroke units are, I guess, a treatment platform that's uh, increasingly receiving interest uh, worldwide. It's a specialized um, ambulance that has a CT scanner, um, has all the drugs required for acute stroke management, as well as, as a uh, multidisciplinary team and essentially brings the hospital to the patient rather than having to bring the patient to the hospital. Uh, the background of the mobile stroke unit, uh, the very first one was set up in 2007 in southern Germany, um, a more sort of rural mobile stroke unit in, in Homburg and that, that was uh, uh, Klaus Fassbender and Silke Walter uh, down in Germany. That was the very first one. And the second one was, was then um, in Berlin. Um, and then the concepts spread across the Atlantic to the US. And the very first one in the US uh, was in Texas. Um, and uh, and there, there are a lot in the US now. In fact, um, uh, most of the mobile stroke units at the moment are uh, in, the, in the US. The Melbourne mobile stroke unit is the first one in sort of Australian Oceania, Oceania region. Um, we were just pipped uh, in the Southern Hemisphere. Uh, there was one in Argentina that uh, is run by a neurosurgeon, although we're not sure if it's a truly dedicated stroke service or not. And there was one in, uh, in Thailand. But, uh, I, I don't think um, they had thrombolized very, very many people. Um, so, 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 so certainly um, we're, we're one of the, the, the big mobile stroke units around the world and certainly within our own little region. Um, so the rationale for it, as I explained before, really is, is about taking um, the treatment to the patient. Um, as as we all know, really, uh, thrombolysis is is it's is really really time critical. Um, so we, we know we know from evidence that um, delaying thrombolysis by probably even one minute means that the patient probably has, um, in some estimates in the literature, about 1.8 days of of extra disability. Uh, for example, so um, so you know, really every minute counts. Um, and just to give you an idea of the pre pre hospital space, um, so in metropolitan Melbourne, in the data I, I gathered from a local ambulance service uh, in the metropolitan um, region, from when the patient or the family member sort of calls for the ambulance um, until when they're brought to hospital, uh, the median time for that is about fifty six minutes. Mm. Um, the sort of the median um, time from hospital arrival to thrombolysis generally is you know in the order of between fifty or six minutes across cross metropolitan Melbourne. Um, you know, with a bit of variation, but, but around the world that's about probably about right. And you know, some places can get that down a little bit faster if they um, 
uh, the use of sort of more basic imaging, for example. So meaning that the pre-hospital space accounts for probably about 50% of a stroke patient's journey. Um, it's even more if they're, they're brought to the wrong hospital, for example. Yeah. Um, so yeah. that, that gives you relative importance, just how pre-hospital space is. We've spent a lot of effort in recent years to try to optimise things in hospital. For example, um, there's a, what we call the Helsinki uh, model of stroke care, where you know you get the ambulance brings them in with a pre-notification. Um, you know, your, your stroke team meets them um, basically at the entrance, the emergency department. You bring them straight for CT. You don't have to bring them for emergency cubicle beforehand. You know, um, you immediately review the CT and from and thrombolize them. So, you know, a lot of efforts being done to streamline those. Um, and we we have seen you know a, a good optimization of of those processes. Um, uh, for example, in Melbourne, with the Helsinki stroke model, you can probably cut between twenty or forty minutes off off your um, you know off your your time to treatment. So it is effective, but, you know, thrombolysis has been with us for 20 years. Um, and when you look at the, uh, the, the general audit data across Australia, really uh, the door to, to treatment time hasn't really budged in the you know, last five to 10 years. So there's only so much we can do in the hospital space to optimise things further. Um, and when you, when you completely ignore 50% of the patient's journey in the pre-hospital space, uh, that 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 doesn't bode well for, for, for treating people fast. Yeah. So I think that, that that's really where the, the rationale of the mobile stroke unit is. So we, we set up the mobile uh, Melbourne mobile stroke unit. It, it launched into in, in late 2017, but we probably I'd probably involved in the setup process for about sort of two years uh, beforehand. So what what uh, decisions do you have to make in designing such a service? Um, so, uh, look, there's, there's a lot, lot of technical factors, for, for example, um, in metropolitan Melbourne, um, although Australia, you know, overall is, is, is not as densely you know, populated perhaps in, in many cities of the world, but we still have quite narrow streets, we have a lot of trams, so you do need uh, an ambulance that obviously can house a CT scanner, but still nimble enough that you can get around you know, the various streets and uh, you can't have a big whopping one like some places in, in, in the US, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, now, normally uh, in a hospital, the normal CT scan is, is this big, great behemoth that sits there, got a, a bed that um, you load the patient onto the bed, the bed sort of moves in and out of the scanner. That's how the normal sort of CT, hospital CT works. And that's too heavy and cumbersome to put in an ambulance, you know. Um, and, you know, you... And you got to run. You got to run. It's you know, CT has a lot of sort of power. Normal CT has a very high power requirements. You know, you you got to run this thing off basically, uh, the, the car engine. <laughs> you run a CT scanner. So we can't use a normal hospital CT. So we use we use a more mobile CT that was originally built for newer ICUs around the world. It's uh, Serotom CT, and there are uh, there are new ones, sort of new models from other companies that are being released soon, but. A serotom is the main one that's used around the world for this purpose, um, and it's it's much smaller. It's only a small small borehole, which can just basically fit the head, you can't fit the shoulders or any other parts of the body. Mm-hmm. Unlike uh, unlike um, a normal CT, where you know the, the the bed sort of moves in and out, you don't have a bed, so the patient would stay on 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 the on the ambulance uh, stretcher, and instead, CTs has wheels, so the CT actually moves. Um, 
moves across the patient rather than the patient you know, moving um, around the, the CT on, on the bed. Um, and it's got batteries and, you know, store charge, et cetera. Um, and and it's, it's, it's small enough and, and, you know, has less power requirements that, that you can actually make this a, a, a reality. Um, so that's, 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 that's one of the another differences uh, with, with hospital. It's uh, also, the, the, also the staffing, uh, it's going to be different, obviously, from hospital. Now, you've got, um, you've got paramedics. Now, we use uh, two paramedics in, in Melbourne. Um, for at the start of the project, we used to have a, uh, a paramedic with, with a high level of training who were able to do sort of um, airway and sort of intubation because we thought, you know, we'd have a lot of pa patients that are potentially unstable. Um, and, and, and we do, but probably uh, probably not quite as common as, 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 as we thought. So we've, we've gone back to, to, to normal paramedics. And they're, they're very important for, you know, knowing how to get a patient safely out of the house, how to, um, you know, um, sort of start the pre-hospital um, sort of stabilisation, manoeuvring the stretcher, et cetera. So all, all that is, is their specialty. And uh, in, the Melbourne, in the Melbourne model, we have, a, uh, we have a stroke doctor, and that's normally a senior stroke fellow, generally in the last year of training, um, or a, a full sort of stroke, stroke urologist on, on board. Um, we have a, a advanced practice, practice nurse, um, and we have also ha have a CT radiographer for running the CT. So it's sort of largely mimics what, what you would find in a, in a normal sort of hospital stroke care team. Now that's that's uh, not the same worldwide. For example, a lot of places in Germany have a nurse. Um, one place has a neuroradiologist um, in, in, in instead, for example, um, uh, and, and there are and there are. Uh, many places in the US that use um, the doctor through the telemedicine model, and we can discuss about those mm -hmm. sort of directions. But at the moment, we still have uh, sort of basically five members of the team aboard the ambulance. Uh, we, we carry everything that you would expect. We carry thrombolysis agents. We cover uh, antihypertensives, um, both for sort of um, managing um, intracerebral hemorrhage as well as trying to bring you know blood pressure control uh, pre and post thrombolysis. We've got reversal agents uh, such as, you know, vitamin K, prothrombin um, co complex, um, iterosuzumab for the trans, for example. Uh, so we have all, we have all that. Um, uh, we, we carry all, all this on board. We've got a fridge, um, for example, to carry the, the, the cold drugs. So um, everything everything is um, is basically it's very easily sort of reachable, um, uh, which is actually advantage over emergency department where you get to rush around trying to trying to find the drugs. So, um, so that, that's that's handy as well. Yeah. So that's that, that that's basically how how it's designed. Excellent. Um, I think I'd be really keen to discuss in a moment some of the uh, some of the advantages and some of the evidence uh, for mobile stroke units in general. But um, I, I guess people listening that haven't worked in one would be quite interested to know about how you're activated as a stroke unit in Melbourne and what the process is for that. Uh, are you able just to comment on that? Yeah. So the Melbourne model. Uh, relies on a central dispatch with with the ambulance service. So, uh, when that when a patient or, or family member or a bystander calls up uh, the emergency services, um, uh, they go to a generic sort of um, emergency centre which handles you know ambulances, police, fire, etc. Um, so so um, it's it's a person with with limited medical training which sort of triages and uh, basically 
uh, you know, the, the family uh, saying, oh, we think he's had a stroke. They'll go through a list of questions saying, you know, why do you think it's a stroke? Um, what are the symptoms, et cetera? And then they will uh, contact the, uh, the, the ambulance, uh, local ambulance service to, to dispatch ambulances. So um, the, the, mobile, the Melbourne Mobile Stroke Unit runs in a primary dispatch radius of 20 kilometres from its home base, which is at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Um, and it's always uh, dispatched uh, with a, another regular ambulance. So uh, I'll talk about the importance of that in a bit. So, um, uh, so if it's say a job is 10 kilometres away from home base, there will be co-activation of a, usually of a local regular ambulance um, and, and activation of, of the mobile stroke unit. So these are only sort of suspected. Mm -hmm. So we, we, we would then um, go on our way um, and uh, halfway, so generally the local crew will, will get there first. Uh, they'll have a, they'll take a look at the patient, and, and they'll say, uh, and they'll give us a you know a radio update on, on uh, you know whether they, they think that it's 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 a stroke or um, if it's not a stroke they can cancel us there. Um, if if it's looking like a stroke they'll tell us you know what are the what are the vital signs, what are the uh, the stroke deficits. Uh, then we have an idea, um, but before we get there. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And assuming we're not cancelled, we, um, you know, the first crew would start um, getting the extrication, trying to get the, the patient out of the house, getting um, IV access in, um, you know, the vital signs, etc. Um, and generally, by the time, or uh, even before they, they get the patient out of the house, generally we, we, we've arrived, and then we can do a secondary assessment and, and see whether, um, you know, they're eligible for for scanning and for treatment. Yeah. So that, that's, yeah. that's how that's how, uh, that's how we, we're, we're dispatched. Well, what, out of interest, what's your kind of hit rate from that dispatch model? Are you, do you have an idea of how many jobs uh, you would get yeah. to that wouldn't be strokes or a stroke mimics? Yeah, so, so um, uh, yes, so the, 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 the rate of stroke mimics is, is high, uh, mainly because, um, you know, neurological symptoms are generally quite non-specific and difficult for sort of non-sort of medically tra trained people. So uh, we would be overall cancelled to about 60% uh, of the dispatches. So between 50 or 60%, um, um, they're, they're, you know, they're either fully resolved or very, very minor or, you know, they've had symptoms for days or just they clearly they mimics like, you know, hypoglycemia or, um, you know, sepsis or something like that. So um, uh, that, that's that we're looking about the cancellation rate, 50, 60%. Um, although in comparison to hospital, we're looking at probably of all the patients that paramedics bring in, um, I think about uh, when I looked at the data, it was about 35 to 40% even in hospital um, that, that are sort of stroke mimics uh, that are brought in as suspected strokes. Um, so you can see that uh, when you've got even less filtering, that's, that's the, you've got um, a higher rate of, of um, that mm -hmm. you know, don't, don't meet the, uh, the criteria for mobile stroke unit assessment. Yeah. In terms of the evidence behind these mobile stroke units, is there, is there good evidence out there about the benefits to patient care or is this something that's beginning to filter through from the other centres yeah. that, are, that are using them? Yeah. Uh, so overall, uh, I, can, I can tell you about uh, the, our, our Melbourne experience. So uh, we, we recently uh, published a paper in, in, in the Stroke Journal 
uh, about the time savings that we've managed to achieve compared to our local services. So overall for thrombolysis, um, we thrombolyze uh, people a median of uh, 42.5 minutes uh, faster compared to had they been taken to hospital. And, and the control data we, we use was um, from, uh, from all of the metro metropolitan acute stroke centers receiving um, you know, acute stroke patients uh, for thrombolysis assessment. Um, and most of that is because we can get to the patient and, uh, and you know, assess them, scan them straight away, treat them there, um, and not have to transport them to hospital. So most of that is saving that sort of transport time. Mm -hmm. But also, uh, when we looked at when we looked at the figures, uh, we were faster. So compared to arriving at the hospital, going through the CT process, and having thrombolysis, we were still faster in that process uh, from from um, arriving on scene, loading the patient in, having the scans, and, and, and treating them. And you know, there's probably not one reason why uh, why that process is faster, but um, it's probably a combination of things. Firstly, you've got a very experienced um, doctor on board uh, who can make a decision very quickly uh, compared to a hospital where you might have a junior person on board. You might have to ring a more senior person, have a look at the scans, have a think about it, and, and then have and then you know provide the treatment. So that's 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 one that's one thing. You've also got delays uh, in hospital like you know, the CT has acute trauma in it and it's bumped your acute stroke, for example, an even higher priority case, or there's multiple stroke patients. And, you know, so, so uh, the CT is, you know, there's never competition for the CT when you've got, uh, when you've got on the mobile stroke unit. Mm. Um, you know, everything's within reach, for example. Um, so, you know, you're not having to go look for the thrombolysis agent. I think it's a, a combination. So, so both, so uh, that's where you get the time savings. Um, so that's thrombolysis. Now, um, now thrombectomy uh, and vascular thrombectomy, I presume the audience is, is sort of familiar with, with, with that. Um, thrombectomy is performed at four centres in metropolitan Melbourne, uh, but we have sort of, we, um, and most of them are located in the inner, uh, inner central suburbs. Uh, but the, uh, the, the population is growing and the sickest population actually growing at Melbourne's fringes. So the mobile stroke unit actually performs a very important role in actually triaging um, patients up to the right hospital for thrombectomy. So, uh, for example, uh, we're out at you know 20 k's from from home base. The nearest hospital doesn't have thrombectomy services, and we can make the, the you know positive diagnosis um, using the CT on board. So we can do non-contrast CT as well as intracranial CT angiogram. Uh, we can actually definitively show the large vessel occlusion um, um, and en route sort of activate the nearest angiography lab. And basically um, in, in, you know, appropriate cases, we can skip the emergency department, take them straight up. Yeah. Um, and yeah. You know, when we can see, and we can see um, that would we actually save um, in that context where we, where we, you know, sort of have, uh, where we um, allow bypass the local hospital, we actually save of 71 minutes um, from from ambulance dispatch to, um, to 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 groin puncture for thrombectomy, uh, so that's that's a that's a significant amount of time, um, and mainly that's that's just avoiding, uh, you know, having an inter hospital transfer and the slow inter hospital trans transfer processes. Um, you know, you can do everything in parallel with mobile stroke unit um, yeah. early yeah. and get them up. So that's very important. <coughs> found found in Melbourne. 
very similar, very similar sort of time savings between sort of 30 to 40 minutes mostly around the world for thrombolysis. Um, there hasn't been as much data on thrombectomy. We were one of the very first sort of services to report that, that sort of um, thrombectomy time saving. And there, there has recently been a, 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 a trial called uh, um, Be Proud, uh, which is a which is a Berlin trial, uh, which looked at uh, which sort of compared patients where the, the mobile stroke unit their mobile stroke unit was dispatched to compare to those who who, who weren't. This was a pseudo randomized sort of trial, um, and and despite uh, and despite having a, a thrombolysis time saving of only around sort of twenty minutes in Berlin, um, I suspect you know generally they're pretty efficient and uh, and they're sort of high high density sort of spaces so that don't have to travel as far as us, and and whilst uh, and they actually sort of delayed thrombectomy a little bit for their patients because um, all of their centres basically have thrombectomy, <laughs> so there's no triage. They managed to find a um, uh, basically a 35% increased odds ratio of, um, of having a better outcome on the modified ranking scale three months, um, which was, which was significant. Um, uh, so we, uh, we, we yet to sort of uh, see that the proper publication from that, we think part of it might be, is, even though they're, they're only saving 20 minutes, they're pushing a lot of, people into this, uh, what we call the golden hour. And I can talk a little bit about the golden hour, sort of, if you like. Yeah. So the golden hour is the first hour from symptom onset. And that's, you know, as we know, sort of time is brain. That's really uh, the time when you've got still, you know, a lot of salvageable tissue. Um, once, once you get out, uh, you know, the curves are steepest in that, in that region. And then really the sort of, it's a sort of plateau out and, um, you know, once you're getting to, to the, uh, you know, to, to the three and a half and four and a half hours, um, uh, you know, the, the, the effect is sort of, sort of dropping off, but, but probably uh, as at a slower rate than, than really sort of early on. Um, so you really want to get, you really want to treat patients within this, this really, this, this golden hour, possibly, um, although, you know, meeting time saving 20 minutes, if you're, if you're if you're still on the steep part of the curve and you sort of you're, you're pushing more and more so sort of, uh, a lot of patients into the golden hour, um, you might be doing more effect. That 20 minutes time saving might be having more of an effect um, at the very early time points than at you know your four and a half hours. Um, so that's that that's potentially um, one of the reasons why. Um, it, um, despite you know smaller time saving, they, they found this this significant benefit. Mm. Um, there, there might be something to do with mobile stroke unit care as well, but you know this all needs to be sort of teased out. I think data in the in the future. Do you, do you have any idea of, uh, or have you done any modelling in MSU of how many patients you might have uh, been able to get treatment to in that golden hour compared to? whether they'd received standard care. Is that something that you've, you've looked at? Yes, 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 we've looked at that. Um, so in the Melbourne experience, uh, we, we thrombolise about 15% of patients uh, within, the, uh, within the golden hour, of our patients within the golden hour. Uh, now, it doesn't sound like much, but in hospital, the figure is actually 1.3%. Um, and that's not surprising when the median time, I told you that in the pre-hospital space, the median time from ambulance dispatch to, to, to hospital arrival is 56 minutes. 
uh, which means mm. it doesn't leave, a, leave you with a lot of time <laughs> to, 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 to give them thrombolysis if, if you don't reach that golden hour. So the figure is actually 1.3%, and that's, that's our local data. Um, and uh, that's also backed up as I think, a very similar figure in the US as well, very big um, sort of US study. Um, so it's, it's about 1% to 2% um, in, in hospital normally. Um, so going to 15% means it's a tenfold increase. <laughs> so a thousand times um, uh, the, the, the usual hospital rate. In some places in the world, I think it's, it might be even higher. So I think uh, it's almost up to sort of 30% in, in sort of um, um, in, in, in Houston. I guess it's just um, depends on you know, how early people are calling and, uh, yeah. and how efficient your pre-hospital there. But yeah, so it's a significant impact. So, but not not only the golden hour, but in the first ninety minutes, um, generally uh, it's um, in hospital. Um, uh, so ninety minutes from from onset, the figure is about twenty percent can receive from life within ninety minutes in hospital. The mobile stroke unit. Uh, the Melbourne in Melbourne, we we thrombolyze now fifty percent of patients within the first ninety minutes. Right. So, um, so it's it's significant. We, we um, in fact, we actually see most of our patients within. Uh, so, about fifty percent of all our patients within the first hour of symptoms. So, you, you can you can see, <laughs> it's, a, it's a big difference. Yeah, and have you yet, has the project been running long enough yet to get a feel for patient outcomes um, from the, from MSU, or is that something that that you're looking at? Yeah, I, I'm I'm working on that. Um, um, just just looking uh, essentially, I, I do have I do have the data. Um, it, it does look good, but the problem is um, I, I just need to find a, a good control group at the moment, a a um, a, a relevant sort of control group just to um, yeah uh, just yeah. To, just to adjust things. So um, okay. but, but the raw data is, 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 is looks very promising. So actually, we just need to double check that it's uh, <laughs> statistically uh, real. <laughs> Excellent. And then um, just to finish off, moving away uh, from the specifics of the mobile stroke unit, because I'll be aware that lots of people listening perhaps don't work at a centre where they have access to an MSU. Um, but talking in more general terms about pre-hospital stroke, with the introduction of uh, thrombectomy for large vessel occlusive strokes, there's been a real change in the focus of how these patients are best managed. And uh, as you've said, um, getting them to the thrombectomy centre is of sort of utmost importance. Are there any tools that can be used by paramedics that you're aware of that can help with that triage decision in the field? Uh, and is there any uh, sort of data looking at this uh, in clinical practice? Yeah. Yeah, so, 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 so there is. So uh, it, it might be handy just to talk about uh, what has been to sort of traditional sort of pre-hospital systems of, of, of care. So um, in, in Melbourne, and uh, I suspect probably in most parts of, of the Western world, um, historically what, um, uh, what would happen is that the, you know, the, um, the paramedics would be dispatched to a, to a patient um, and uh, on their assessment, they, they, they feel, you know, it's, it's a stroke uh, within X hours. It sort of used to be sort of stroke within six hours. The paramedics would go to one of uh, 10 um, acute stroke centres around town um, who are sort of equipped. They've got sort of stroke units. They're able to do CT quickly. They've got, they've got sort of 24-hour sort of staffing to, to review acute stroke patients for sort of um, for th thrombolysis and, you know, um, and thrombectomy sort of decisions. 
So, um, so that's that's traditionally what, what what would happen. You'd go to your closest one, um, unless you know the emergency department for that one was full, and you go to the next nearest one. Basically, easy, right? So, but it was so everything was easy when it was just thrombolysis. Uh, but in 2015, once priors for thrombectomy were through, then you had a then you had a problem. So uh, the problem is analogous to you know the the um, the STEMI and having the availability of angio labs when you know the cardiac, sort of, um, cardiac um, conventional services were in its infancy. So uh, so endo, endovascular centres, um, uh, uh, or we call sort of terms sort of comprehensive stroke centres, they're very expensive. Um, so most of the comprehensive centres, you, you basically need. Uh, you can probably get by on one, but ideally two angio labs. You've got to you've got to staff them twenty four hours with. You know, it's not just, you know, um, interventionalists, um, angiography nurses, anaesthetics. Um, you know, stock them with all the expensive, you know, equipment, your stents and uh, retrievers and whatever, you know, your catheters. So they're very, very expensive. Um, and the other thing is that, uh, other thing is that uh, you need, um, uh, you need to have a volume. You need to do a volume cases to 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 deliver the best outcomes for the patient. We know that you know if you only do a handful every year, um, your skills just aren't there to really de deliver the best outcomes for stroke patients. So you need some concentration of experience at the comprehensive stroke centre. So, um, uh, like I said before, with the mobile stroke unit, uh, it, we, just four of the centres uh, can, can do thrombectomy in, in, in Melbourne, and um, those that are located centrally, that's, that's a big problem in, in most parts of the world as well. Um, which means uh, if you're a patient living in the fringes and your local hospital doesn't have thrombectomy, under the normal models, you'd be taken there, um, you'd have your initial workup at the peripheral centre, and um, the peripheral centres are generally probably a little bit, a little bit slower um, than, than than the comprehensive centres. And doing workup, you'd find your uh, blood vessel uh, occlusion. Then the peripheral centre would have to contact the comprehensive centre, the interventionist there, and say, um, "Would you will accept this patient for thrombectomy?" They have a think about it, um, have a look, and then yes, and then you've got to organise another hospital transfer and and uh, that process can be is pretty slow so from arrival at the local center to the arrival at the comprehensive center um, it's about 100 120 minutes in in metropolitan melbourne mm. even when you know that the, the two hospitals are probably about 20 minutes drive away from each other just because that that hospital you know, transfer process is complex. So given that, you know, we know that treatment's time critical. In fact, um, in, in fact, you're probably losing more brain to large vessel occlusion than, than, you know, in other types of other sort of mild ischemic stroke. Really for those patients, it's even more important in, in, in some ways um, that you have their treatment faster. So, um, what what can be done? Uh, what can be done to uh, get the patient to the right hospital? Um, so, obviously, you know, mobile stroke would be fantastic, but you, you know, you can't run that everywhere, and you can't run that at, at over twenty four hours. It's very few twenty four hour sort of uh, mobile stroke unit services around the world. So, one way is uh, one way is to have the paramedics uh, sort of help triage that judgment. They they do that regularly in Melbourne for. For, for STEMI, some myocardial infarction and, and for trauma, uh, but it's obviously all obvious um, who those patients are. You know, you've got 
portable uh, ECG, for example. So where you don't where you don't have a CT, the best way of trying to determine whether the patient likely has large vessel occlusion is by clinical severity. Uh, it's very clear that the larger the clot, uh, the more severe the symptoms you're going to have. Um, and so uh, this is where severity-based triage has been of enormous interest worldwide. So what, what you would have is the, a clinical sort of scale or a tool that you would give to the paramedics um, to apply during the assessment of the patient. And the patient you know, has a, a scores X on this scale, then, then they're likely to have larger seclusion and you can sort of then bypass them. Mm. Um, so, so, there's a number, so there's lots of these around the world. Uh, you might have heard some of them, the more popular ones such as LAMS or RACE or et cetera um, presented. So uh, locally, we, we use one called um, ACTFAST. Uh, it's one of the most simple and, and most specific. That, um, uh, so it's start designed for simplicity. It's not a scale, it's, it's an algorithm. Um, and it's work uh, that I did with Ambulance Victoria um, uh, to have a look at how large patients with large vessel occlusion present. Um, and, and basically, the, the short of it is that these patients have severe motor um, deficit in addition to a severe sort of cortical deficit. So uh, we've designed um, a very simple algorithm. Basically, um, you have a look at arm pronated drift. If it, if it falls to the stretch and under 10 seconds, um, you, you know, uh, um, which is the same as the National Institutes of Health Stroke Scale, um, our motor item. Um, then, then you're positive for step one. Step two, basically, if your right side is weak, you have a look for a severe speech, so the appropriate cortical sign. If you're weak on the left, you look for a um, severe sort of gaze deviation um, or neglect, but um, with a quick sort of shoulder tap test. Um, and, um, and, that's, and that's all the examination steps you have to do to, to really determine if someone's likely to have a large vessel occlusion. Mm. Um, mm. And, um, and subsequently, um, you just want to, you know, you ruled out any stroke mimics, for example, um, hypoglycemia, seizures, et cetera. So it's very, it's very, very simple. Mm. And, uh, and in our validation data, um, the positive predictive value for large vessel occlusion for uh, if you score positive on the fast algorithm is around sort of 60%. Um, and uh, and the, of the 40% um, that's uh, you know, remaining, about 20% of those are um, uh, intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, and uh, and I mean, 20% are generally sort of seizures or, or you know, spontaneously migrated um, uh, large vessel occlusion. So it, it's, a, it's a very, it's a, it's a high specificity um, of using clinical severity to, to, to triage patients. I think that the, the, the LAMS has a slightly lower sort of positive predictive value around the sort of 30 to 40% race about sort of the, the 40 to sort of 50%. Um, so that's, that's, that's how sort of they, they compare sort of worldwide. So do you have a feel for how many vessel occlusion, um, vessel occlusive strokes act fast would miss and, and you know, and potentially might take to a, yeah. a non-thrombectomy center? Yeah, so um, uh, in our data, up to, up to a third of larger occlusions can be milder and therefore missed by severity-based tool, okay? But, but there's a few caveats. The data we looked at was when they arrived at hospital. So there's a lot of fluctuation. They can start off very severe with the first ambulance crew and then become sort of milder. So that's 
that there can be some fluctuation in that way. And obviously, you know, there's, um, there's people that sort of have a bit of spontaneous migration from a proximal to perhaps a mid-vessel occlusion, for example. So, uh, so just with that, so up to third can be milder. However, we've done further work uh, looking at this population of, of milder large vessel occlusion. And what we can see those is uh, those, um, the vast majority of those have very, very good collaterals. And we haven't actually been able to determine that, uh, that um, the interhospital transfer process has been deleterious compared, compared to if they had arrived directly at, at the door of the comprehensive centre. So it's interesting. So, um, uh, and also the milder large vessel occlusions, there's some controversy, for example, um, in most meta-analyses of large vessel occlusion with um, National Institutes of Health stroke scale less than six, thrombolysis has been probably just as good, um, if not safer <laughs> than offering these patients to thrombectomy. So, um, so although, you know, you can miss some of these milder ones, the, uh, the, uh, the benefits of bypassing these, or even of offering some of these people thrombectomy is still um, under question. So I wouldn't be too worried about, um, about those. If you chase the mole, if you chase too many mole ones, you, your specificity is just going to be really poor. <laughs> Basically, you end up bringing a whole lot of patients to the comprehensive centre for nothing. And then uh, finally, is there any, are there any studies that have been done looking at patient outcomes using these pre-hospital triage scores? There's a few. There's a few that's 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 uh, that's coming up. So, uh, one study that was recently uh, presented was the, was a Catalonian study called the RaceCat trial. Um, the RaceCat trial was mainly a, a more sort of a, a sort of remote, sort of rurally based uh, bypass um, trial where sort of patients who were scored positive on, on the on the race scale were either uh, sent to their you know, to the local sort of um, regional uh, centre, which um, some of which um, didn't didn't have um, neuroimaging um, or uh, uh, or couldn't sort of give thrombolysis at all. Sort of interestingly, um, compared to uh, if they had been sort of bypassed from the from you know the remote regions into metropolitan sort of Catalonia for for thrombectomy. Um, so uh, so. Uh, so within that trial, initial results were that um, there was no change in, in, in uh, patient benefit despite, despite the active group sort of receiving thrombectomy over 50 minutes earlier. And, um, and, and the, active, uh, the, the active arm actually received 10% so more uh, uh, thrombectomy uh, as, as well. Um, so the question here is, uh, question here is why why was the trial neutral? Now we haven't a lot, had a lot of da uh, data through for it, so um, uh, they hadn't sort of adjusted for sort of vessel uh, occlusion status, etc. They had just looked at um, you know the data within their sort of um, within all of their ischemic stroke and TIA patients. So that was a subset of the patients they looked at and compared between the two groups. And obviously, if you look at all the um, stroke and TIA patients, only a fraction of them, probably 50% or less um, of those received thrombectomy in each group. So you've got a dilutional effect straight away. Mm. So you know, essentially, you know, 50% of your patients just weren't having reperfusion therapy. So clearly they, they, they you know, weren't, weren't going to make a difference. So um, we're, 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 we're waiting on a few sort of sub-analyses, you know, patients that had 
large vessel collusion, for example. Uh, and, and, and obviously there was a few quirks um, in the Catalonian system where, you know, the, the local sites basically, uh, the local sites basically did just, some of the local sites didn't have even neuroimaging or thrombolysis capability. So, you know, you pretty much just drop them at the door. A telemedicine doctor would have a look at them and say, oh yeah, they're severe. They need to come to a comprehensive centre and off they went. So it was hardly better, <laughs> in fact, than just sort of bypassing them through. So, um, uh, so we just have to be aware that, that there's probably a few quirks in that system. Um, and a, a few more analyses. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, basically every, um, you know, meta-analysis, every observation analysis um, of data has shown that um, direct presenting patients to the comprehensive centre have done significantly better than transfer time, transfer patients because of the time saving. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So all the evidence that before has 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 um, has, has shown that. So um, it's a little bit of a surprise, but I think we need more data to to, to really analyse what's going on in that trial. Great. And then before we wrap up, um, what are the what are your future plans uh, with regards to Mel the Melbourne Mobile Stroke Unit? What what's in the uh, what's in the pipeline there? Yeah. So um, so we, we we actually have we're actually thinking even broader than the the, uh, the mobile the mobile stroke unit sort of concept. So in in Australia, um, we we, um, uh, we we are currently um, designing a um, a sort of program for the future uh, called the Golden Hour Program, and that's led by uh, two of the uh, sort of world famous neurologists, Professor Stephen Davis and Professor Jeffrey Donnan. Um, and, and in that program, um, we're looking uh, we're looking at sort of future generations of mobile stroke units with, with better CT scans. Um, with with a you know look for other technologies such as telemedicine, which we may be able to use in the future, and rolling these out to other sort of Australian cities. Um, uh, ideally, um, at least one in every um, capital city, um, and in large capital cities like Sydney or Melbourne, um, there's probably a need for you know more, maybe even two or three, uh, to really cover everyone. Um, so that's that's the, so that, that's that's one stream of it. Another stream is uh, using sort of a similar concept as these mobile stroke units. We'd like to put CTs um, into uh, into airplanes to really uh, to really give um, uh, you know assistance to to those in sort of in the in the rurals and really the remote regions and especially some indigenous Australian communities which have very little access to um, to these services. So. Um, we've, we've started uh, we've started designs uh, to put CTs in both sort of helicopters and fixed-wing aeroplanes, um, um, and uh, and you know and so that we can we can fly these two-stroke patients, provide their thrombolysis, provide their imaging, determine whether they need sort of um, uh, uh, you know thrombectomy or not. Just do exactly what we would do with a with a road mobile stroke unit. Um, just that, um, we, we, you know, we, we can see that uh, 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 with aeroplanes, we've got a much larger reach um, because, they, you know, in Australia, there's so there's so much uh, sort of sparse territory, so in remote areas, <laughs> very sparsely populated. Um, so we, we need something to cover, you know, these great distances for people just to, you know, reduce the inequality of sort of stroke services. Yeah. Um, and the last yeah. thing we're having a look at is, um, is looking at miniaturization technology for future CTs. Um, so uh, concepts here are things like car carbon nanotube 
um, CT, uh, which theoretically is much better than the usual um, in X-ray filament that we use. Uh, there's much less, uh, you know, the, the scans are uh, immediate. Um, you don't need to have the rotating gantry. It's normally in normal CTs. Um, it, it can do it statically. Um, um, and uh, there's much less energy requirements and not to mention much lighter. So, um, uh, so if, if we can look at that sort of CT technology, that's going to make the future, you know, road and air mobile stroke units much easier and also for other purposes, um, which is, uh, you know, mobile uh, CT technologies for ICUs, for example. Um, there are also other portable sort of devices that, uh, uh, that have been looked at, for example, uh, electromagnetic helmets, which which may be able to determine whether you've got intracerebral hemorrhage or not. And these these would be, you know, like a bicycle helmet you can put on patients um, in a regular ambulance, essentially, and get the data from that. Um, so th these these are also sort of part of the, the program that, that we're looking at um, for for future sort of pre-hospital uh, care of stroke. So uh, very very exciting times coming up. You know, it sounds very exciting and. Um, Thanks very much for spending time talking to us about this topic. No problems. Cool. Cheers, Henry. Thank you very much. No worries. Okay, thank Bye. you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.